Well, it's a pleasure to be with you this evening. I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation. Back at the beginning of the book, we will begin again, only now starting in chapter 2. Today we begin a brief series, summer series, on the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And we're doing this a little bit out of order because I wanted you to have a clear grasp, a clear vision of who Jesus Christ is, and then go back and understand that all that we've seen and heard about Jesus in the book of Revelation, all that we've seen and learned about Jesus, is that's the Jesus who is speaking and writing letters to the churches in Asia Minor. There are seven congregations mentioned here, seven churches in seven different cities, and since we know that this is a book of symbols and imagery, we don't have to take this literally per se, but we can understand that what Jesus says to these seven churches, he says to all of the churches everywhere. We might put it in these terms, he, put, he says all of these things to the church Catholic, the church universal, the church that exists everywhere throughout space and time. One of the things you will note as we make our way through these letters is that we identify with some of these churches better than we do with others. We are going to see ourselves in some of these congregations in ways that we don't see ourselves in others. But what I would encourage you to do as we make our way through this is to be generous and gracious as we look at these churches and know that every congregation of God's people has its own kind of mess. Every congregation has its own kind of mess. As Eugene Peterson says in his commentary, on, on Revelation, the fleas come with the dog. And that's just how it is. Every congregation has its own mess. And the fleas you see, the ones that make you scratch, the things that are biting you here, it just comes with us, okay? So... What you're going to find is that there is no such thing as a perfect church. You've probably figured that out by now. This makes it very clear to us that there is no such thing as a perfect church. The best of these churches are still criticized by Jesus for their failures and their weaknesses in certain areas. The worst of the churches can even find a glimmer of hope. And so each of these congregations with its own kind of mess should encourage us and comfort us in knowing that Jesus still walks among the lampstands. He still dwells among His people warts and all. And so for people who think, I don't need the church, I'm just, it's just going to be me and Jesus, well, you've got your own personal mess going on. But if you want to find Christ and want to be with Christ, you need to know that the church historically has said that there is no possibility of salvation outside the church. There is no ordinary way of salvation outside of life in the church. So if you think you can find salvation outside the church, somewhere else without a congregation, you are terribly mistaken. What we see in this vision, I remind you of this, that John is on the island of Patmos and he has heard a voice speaking to him. He's caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day and after he hears this voice speaking to him, he turns around to see the voice 
And when he turns, lo and behold, he sees Christ among the churches. And I'm going to remind you of that every week for the next seven weeks, that Christ is in the midst of His church. He dwells with His people through thick and thin. He's never going to leave us or abandon us. He's never going to look for a congregation that's better than this one. He's never going to find one that's healthier than this one. He doesn't look for those things. He's going to dwell with His people and work to reform His people right where He is. And in that alone, He is distinct from most of the people we know. So I want to encourage you every step of the way. If you think, oh man, we're going to look at these seven letters and we're about to get in trouble. We're going to get creamed every week. It's not going to be like that. We are going to be affirmed in some things. And we are going to be challenged in some things, but we're also going to be encouraged in some things as well. And so I want you to bear down with me and let's go to God's Word and hear the Word of God from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We'll look at the very first letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And keep in mind that these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to His church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands, the golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading the hearing and the preaching of His Word. And all the church says, you may be seated. Most commentaries will tell you that there is a basic structure to these letters. All seven letters follow the same basic structure. I will tell it to you now. You will forget. I'll remind you next week. And you will forget. And I'll remind you the week after that. And so forth and so on. Uh, just as I forgot until I started studying these things again. I'm like, oh yeah, that makes it so easy. But here's the basic structure. Jesus considers His church. Jesus commends His church. Jesus confronts His church. And then Jesus counsels His church. And finally, Jesus comforts His church. You see how easy that is? And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next uh, few minutes and then for the weeks to follow. 
Jesus considers His church, chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand. Long ago in a galaxy far, far away when we started our series on Revelation, we saw that when Jesus revealed himself to John, one of the images was Jesus was standing before John holding seven stars in his right hand. We see this image of the cosmic Christ. He is majestic and glorious. And when John fell at his feet, terrified, thinking he was going to die, Jesus, with that same right hand that had the seven stars in it, reached down and comforted John with his right hand. And remember, we talked about how Jesus is so magnificent, so gracious with his people that there is nothing so great or so large and concerning that he can't set it aside for a moment to deal with one member of his flock. And that's what he did with John. But now he comes to the church at Ephesus and he's sending a letter to them through their angel. Now, a lot of people will say, what does that mean? Is he writing a letter to the pastor so the pastor can go tell everyone? And that's not what's happening here. What we learn in looking at the scriptures, looking here at the book of Revelation, going back to the prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, we learn that there are guardian angels over God's people. This congregation of God's people, believe it or not, this congregation of God's people, Christ Covenant Church, has an angel watching out over us. That's about as far as I can go with it. I don't know what he does. I don't know exactly how he works, but I know that if Jesus were going to send us a letter, it would come by that messenger. So to the angel of the church at Ephesus writes... This guardian angel brings the letter down to John, and John then conveys it to the church. And these are the words of Jesus Christ. These are the words of Him holding the seven stars in His right hand. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. He is walking among His churches. The ultimate pastor, the supreme pastor of all of the churches is the Lamb of God who is the shepherd of His flock. And he is keeping a close watch on all of his churches throughout all of the world, throughout all of space and time. He knows every detail of our lives, of our congregational life. He pays close attention to the ebb and flow of our congregational life. He knows our struggles. He knows our victories, weaknesses, needs, frailties. He knows all of these things about us. We are a lampstand for Christ here in our little corner of the world. And it's not our own light that we shine and radiate. It is the light of the Spirit of God. The seven spirits of God illuminate from this congregation, from this lampstand. So however much light you think we're shining or however little light you might imagine we're shining, the fact of the matter is we are lamps in the temple of God. We are a light for the world here in this little corner of the world. Now, one thing I want you to see as we make our way through these letters is that every single congregation of God's people represents Christ in some way. But there is not a single congregation anywhere that represents Christ in every way perfectly. 
One way we know that is because each and every time Jesus addresses a congregation, He addresses the congregation in light of who He is. In other words, in this case, we see that He addresses them as the one who holds seven stars in the right hand and who walks among the lampstands. He won't say that again to any other church, but there's some connection between all of that and the church in Ephesus. I don't know what that connection is, but Jesus does, and that's all that matters. There's some connection there. I think I know, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole with you right now. Ask me afterwards, and I'll give you an opinion about that. But the thing I want you to see is Jesus comes, and He wants the church to look at Him. Pay attention to Jesus. He is the one who has the seven stars in His hand who walks among the church. And you got to love what he does next. He does what I don't do well enough as a pastor. I don't do this well enough. And I need to learn from Jesus. But he commends the church. He commends the church. In other words, he says, let me tell you all the good things I see about you. And he lists a lot of them here. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. He talks about how they hate the work or the, uh, the, the life and the work of the Nicolaitans. Uh, he knows how they've tested those who call them apostles and are not, and they found them to be false, and so they're very discerning. He knows that they've endured patiently and they bear up for his namesake and they have not grown weary. So Jesus has all of these great things to say about the church in Ephesus. If you can remember back, it's been a while, but we have looked at the story of the church in Ephesus in the book of Acts, and you can see the very things that Jesus mentions here are mentioned in the book of Acts, in chapter 19, chapter 20, and then Paul wrote a letter to that church and mentioned some of these same things as well. And let me point them out for you. Let me just give you an idea, a little flavor of why Jesus is commending them. They had a very humble beginning, by the way. It was a shaky beginning. One guy came and preached a partial gospel. He preached a little bit of truth, but he wasn't quite squared up with the gospel. He was a little bit, as we might say, he was uh, half a bubble off plum. And so he had to be corrected. I mean, here's what he was doing. Is he was preaching about Jesus, but he was baptizing people in the name of John the Baptist. And he tried to establish the first Baptist church in Ephesus. And Paul showed up and said, no, 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 no. That's not how we roll. That's not how we're going to do things. And so what happened is, is they were practicing baptism in the wrong way with the wrong meaning. And furthermore, they didn't understand that Jesus had come to give the gift of the Holy Spirit to His people. And so they were pointed in the right direction, but they needed to be reformed. Paul shows up and he corrects that mess. He helps them clean that up. They get things lined out. And after they work through those baptismal kinks, the church gets better established. And once the church gets better established, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, then they begin to work on the community around them. Acts 19 tells us that they established a school. The Apostle Paul established a school, the school of Tyrannus in the hall of Tyrannus, and they began to teach and to train people, and the gospel is going out. This is a kind of seminary, you might say. And so the gospel is going out all over that region. Acts 19 says that 
when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them, took the disciples with him, reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Talk about doing your good works. Talk about faithfulness to the gospel. And furthermore, Paul is, is working among the people and God is doing extraordinary miracles by His hands. People are coming to faith. They're marveling at the Lord. They are amazed at the power of the gospel at work in this little community of the church in Ephesus. We also learn in Acts 19 that fear fell upon them all. Fear fell upon them all in that community and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And so many who were now believers came and they confessed and they divulged their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. There are a lot of ways to abuse that, by the way, and some of us have seen that. But what they were doing here is simply manifesting the fact that the gospel had taken a grip on their life and the gospel was changing them from the inside out. They're cleaning up their lives, cleaning up their homes, and that began to affect the economy and the culture of Ephesus. People calculated that the value of all of that came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in Ephesus. So the church is established, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. A school is established. Pastors and teachers are trained to go out. The gospel is going everywhere. The city is being reformed by the church and by the gospel. The world is being reformed by these things. And just when you think... Nothing bad can happen now. Trouble strikes. Trouble strikes. And the trouble doesn't come from outside the church. It actually comes from within the church. It came from within the eldership, from the session of the church. You've got power struggles and doctrinal soapboxes and selfish motives. All of these things are happening. Paul said to the elders before he departed, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Well, apparently they were alert because Jesus commends them for testing those who claimed to be ministers of the Word, who claimed to be apostles, but were not. So He commends them for holding down the fort, for lifting up orthodoxy, for testing and discerning people. You find also that the church was equipping people for works of ministry. This was going on. All of these things are happening and the church is maturing so that they would no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and the craftiness of men and their deceitful schemes. All of these things are happening in the church of Ephesus. Now, I don't know about you, but it sounds like a very exciting place. There's a lot going on there, right? I mean, I like a good fight. You should know that, Baron. I like a good theological knockdown drag out. Let's get it on. You know, let's not mess around with these things. So, sounds like a great place to be if you're into that kind of stuff, right? Then, after years of struggle and sacrifice and a lot of grinding it out, you know what you kind of expect to see happen? 
You expect to see the church just reach their end and say, man, we are exhaustified. We can't take this anymore. We can't do this. We can't keep, we can't keep going on like this. And yet they didn't. Jesus says to them, you're enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. I mean, what an amazing congregation this would be, right? You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, Jesus says, which I also hate. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Here we are in the Bible Belt, and everyone's supposed to play nice with each other, and you're not supposed to say you hate anything or any other teacher. You're not supposed to criticize anyone. You're never, never supposed to be discerning. You're never supposed to say to people, don't read those books, don't listen to that teacher, don't go to that church, don't be a part of that ministry. It's nonsense. It's heresy. It's bad for you. Believe me, uh, we know by experience that when you do those things, people get upset. I think back to 11 years ago, when I first came to this congregation, uh, I remember some things that were going on. I remember things that people were reading, teachers they were listening to. Believe it or not, Joyce Meyer was a staple of the day among some of our women. People were learning about Battlefield of the Mind and such. Bob Bell, who has gone off the rails, was also being promoted. Numa videos, very attractive, engaging, but his teaching was destructive. Those are just some of the things that we saw early on in the life of this congregation of God's people. But guess what you did? You did very much what the church in Ephesus did, is you pushed through that. You started to grow in maturity in the gospel, and you started to discern and change and get rid of some of those bad teachers and then take on new teachers and new influences. And you started to grow up in the gospel. But you know that it didn't come without struggle. It was a lot of struggle, a lot of sacrifice. We all lost friends. We lost family. We lost a lot of things through this. And so we don't want to be arrogant and proud about it, but we do want to say that as we look at us, would Jesus commend us for something? I think he would commend you for that. He would commend you for your perseverance in the gospel, for your growth in the grace of the gospel. He would, he would commend you for hating those victory people. That's what the Nicolaitans were. They were the, um, put it this way, they were the, the power religion of the day. Always talking about victory this, victory that. We're the power people. We've got the power. But they didn't have the gospel. That's where they were. So Jesus commended the church. And if, if the letter ended right there, wow. We would all say, where is the church in Ephesus? Maybe we do need to find another congregation and let's go be a part of that. No, it doesn't end there. In spite of all of those good things, then Jesus says, but I've got this one thing that i got to tell you about. And I don't know about you, but uh, as I said, I like a good theological knock down, drag out. But you know what I hate to do is I hate to confront somebody for one little thing, right? I just want to let it go. That's my tendency. Like I see something, I probably should say something, but I don't want to say it. I'm just going to let it slide. Time heals all wounds, bygones, bygones, right? And Jesus says, no, I got this one thing I get you and I can't let it go because it really strikes at the heart of the life of this church. So if you're in Ephesus, you brace yourself. What is it? What did, what did we do? And he says, you have abandoned your first love. 
You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now what does that mean? Does it mean that they've abandoned love as the primary motivation for what they were doing? Does it mean that they abandoned the love they had at the very beginning where they just loved what they were involved in and now they're kind of tired of it? Does it mean they have abandoned the one love, the one true love that they should have had? Does it mean that they have forgotten that first love? You all remember your first love, right? You were probably in second grade or something, and that boy or that girl caught your eye, and that's always going to be your very first love, puppy love. Maybe that's what Jesus had in mind. No, what Jesus has in mind here is the love that they had for Christ and for the church. In Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, and then 15 to 16, Paul's writing to the church and he says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, in bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, by, then later, by speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Christ who is the head, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly Christ makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love three times in one chapter he talks about the importance of love and Paul actually ends the letter to uh, to the Ephesians by saying grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love or with an incorruptible love Interesting that you fast forward a few years and Jesus says you have abandoned your first love. What does he mean? He means that in all of their efforts to maintain the truth, to pursue orthodoxy, to hang on to sound doctrine and good systematic theology and to get all of those things in a row, they have neglected each other. They've not looked out for each other the way they should. They were so busy fighting all of these battles and making sure the bad guys were driven out or kept out that they forgot to take care of the life of the church. They had lost their first love. Now I'm happy to say that that's not true of you. We see that you love each other very much. Can you grow in love for each other? Absolutely. But we don't see at all that you have flagged in that area. But the church in Ephesus did, and there's a lesson in it for us, and that is that you can have all the truth you want, but if you don't have love, Jesus is going to come after you, right? You can have all the truth, all the sound theology, all the right doctrine you want, but if you don't have love, Jesus is going to come and say, hey, you better fix that, clean up that mess. He holds it against his church when his church does not love one another. After all, Jesus gave this commandment. John told us this. The commandment was a new commandment, a new-to-them commandment, that you must love one another as Christ has loved you. And when you love one another as Christ has loved you, the world will know that you are the followers of Jesus Christ. So that's a real concern. You don't want to be a church. You don't want to be a congregation of God's people that is all about truth and not about love. On the flip side, you don't want to, also, you don't want to be a congregation of God's people that's all about love and then neglects the truth. 
You want to bring the two together. As Paul says, speaking the truth in love is how we grow up in maturity into Christ. So Jesus says, remember from, which, from what you have fallen, how far you've fallen. Okay, This is a kind of fall. Uh, they've fallen from love. Some people fall from grace, but they are fallen. They have fallen from love from one another. Remember your works of love and go back and do them again. So he gives them these two things. He counsels the church in this way. Again, if the letter ended here, we would all leave. We would be dejected, miserable. We think, wow, what fa failures we are. We can't get anything right. And then Jesus says, no, let me give you some counsel. Counsel is this, remember and repent. Repent and do the works of love that you were doing at first. If you do not, I will come remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And this is a threat. And think of the consequence of that. If Jesus comes and removes this congregation, if, say you're in Ephesus, Jesus came and removed the church from Ephesus. Think of the impact that would have on the city of Ephesus, on Asia Minor, and on other parts of the world. If Jesus came and removed our lampstand here in Skeetside, some people say, well, nobody would even notice we were missing. But I beg to differ. There would be people right now who are seeing and hearing the gospel through ministry efforts in this church who would no longer see and hear the gospel. If Jesus removed our lampstand and said, you're not going to be there anymore. Not only would we suffer as families and individuals, but our community would suffer. Our community would suffer because there would be one less gospel witness in this corner of the world. And so Jesus comes to counsel the church and says, Repent, turn around, go back and do the things that you've left behind. Keep doing the good things you're doing. You don't have to give up on those things. But go back and do those other things that you know need to be done. Get into each other's homes. Text each other. Get together for coffee. Look out for one another. Take care of one another. Push each other to grow up in Christ. That's what it means to love one another. Help each other out when you have needs. You may say, well, that doesn't seem very spiritual. I mean, it doesn't seem very theological. Well, it's practical theology. And without that, we don't even know if the church is alive. So we've got to get into each other's lives and show the love of Christ to one another. That's what this part of the letter is about. And then finally, Jesus comes, and I love this. He's such a good pastor. He really is. A, he is the good shepherd, right? And so here he comes to the church in chapter 2, verse 7, and he comforts the church, okay? This is what good pastors do. He's taken us through a little cycle here, and he's going to end on a happy note. And he ends on this note, comforting the church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I love the fact that he ends this letter with a word of comfort. Remember how he promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to his people, the Spirit to guide us into all truth, the Spirit of comfort, the Spirit, the Counselor. He's coming to uh, do his work here. That's what he's doing. Jesus is speaking, but it's the words of the Spirit that are bringing the words to life in the Bible for us, bringing the words to life on the page and in our hearts and in the life of our congregation. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just the church in Ephesus, but also the church in Mesquite. 
To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. What are we going to conquer? Well, we're going to conquer heresy. We're going to conquer false teaching. We're going to conquer ravenous wolves that rise up among us. We're going to conquer all those things. We're also going to conquer hearts that don't love. So we're going to conquer hatred. We're going to conquer fear. We're going to conquer doubt. And we're going to fight the good fight of the faith. We're going to engage in spiritual warfare. And we're going to overcome. How? By remembering and by repenting. By remembering and by repenting. And we do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. The promise is this. Here's motivation for you. In case you're wondering, well, why do I need to do all of this? Why does it matter to me? Well, here's your motivation. If you conquer these things in your life, if your family conquers these things in its life, and if our congregation conquers these things in our life together, Jesus will give us the right to eat of the tree of life. And remember what we saw about the tree of life over the last couple of weeks? The tree of life is where we find healing. The leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. The tree of life is where we find food for our souls. It's where we are able to eat and live forever in communion with God. What a blessing. To, to be granted access to eat of the tree of life means that we will be invited to live to move and exist in the paradise of God. It means that we will be able to follow the Lamb into the new creation. And that is good news. So I hope you enjoyed this letter from Jesus to the church. I hope you see what a good shepherd he is, what a good pastor he is. And I hope you see that these words that he has spoken to Ephesus are not just for the Ephesians, but also for you and for me. Let us take them to heart and let us trust and obey the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Oh God, we confess that we have at times allowed the flames of our own love to burn dangerously low. We confess that we get busy serving and struggling and fighting the good fight of the faith and yet sometimes we forget to look out for each other to take care of the least among us the most needy among us we have come through many struggles and many battles through the years as we try to conform our life and congregation to uh, the standards of your word it would be easy for us to take pride in some of the accomplishments that we've made. And yet we want to confess that apart from you, we could do nothing. We also confess that our hearts are grieved over the losses we've suffered, the strain that we've experienced in relationships and friendships, that at times our zeal for the truth has perhaps... Has perhaps um, cooled our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we want to confess those things and repent. And we want to remember that you have called us to demonstrate your love and your truth.
to one another. And so we pray, O oh God, that by a mighty working of your Holy Spirit, that you would bring fresh revival and renewal to our hearts. We pray that your Spirit will bear fruit in us, knowing that the fruit of the Spirit is, first and foremost, foremost love. And we ask you to do this beginning today. Uh, we do love the truth of the gospel, and some of us are fascinated by the various ideas and the concepts that we find revealed in your word and in the systematic theologies of our faith. And we love the fact that uh, the word of God is so clear and detailed and that you have answered every question we can imagine. And yet sometimes we forget that this theology should drive us to our faces in worship and drive us uh, to our knees in prayer and should drive us uh, to walk our streets and seeking and saving the lost and drive us to open our hands to love people and comfort them with the grace of the gospel. And I pray that you'll help us do that going forward. Help us to heed the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that are revealed here, that we would not slide back but move forward by the mercies of God. And we pray, O oh God, that you will reignite in our hearts a true love for Jesus Christ and a true love for His church wherever she is found. For the sake of Jesus Christ, we ask and pray all these things. Amen.